Welcome to another edition of Legends of Film. In this interview, I talk to editor, producer, and director of CSI, Alex Smite. Mr. Smite is the son of director Jack Smite, who directed No Way to Treat a Lady. No Way to Treat a Lady will be shown July 12, 2014 at 2 p.m. in the main library auditorium. More on this later, but now on to the interview. Could you tell us about who the director Jack Smite was? Well, he's, he was my father and uh, started his career in live television back in New York in the 50s and, and ended up transitioning into features and television work out in California for the rest of his career. Just to lay the groundwork, could you tell us, the listeners, about who you are and what you do? Uh, well, I also became a filmmaker. Uh, started out as an actor years ago. My name's Alex Smite. And, you know, I was always made films as a youngster, so I gravitated behind the camera and spent about 20 years of my career as a film editor. And for the last nine years now, I've been directing and producing on the television series CSI. I was listening to the audio commentary to a Damnation Alley, uh, and the producer of the movie, Paul Malansky, stated that your mother was always a constant on the film set. And were you also on the film sets with your father? I was, not as much as I wish I could have been. Back in the early 70s, he did a film, a television movie in England. It was Frankenstein, The True Story, which is where I really caught the bug because we moved back there for nine months, and part of that was the summer, and I spent just about every day out on the set, but not always with him. Some, I was you know, running around into the editorial department or the special effects department. I sort of had free run of the studio. It was a lot of fun, and really, that's where the seed was planted for me. So was that your first time on a film set? Probably the first time when I really was like acutely aware of what was going on. I'd been out to visit before then. I mean, my first time was a movie called Illustrated Man back in 1968. But the, that summer was when I really sort of understood what was really going on. I was just wondering, I like the Illustrated Man, was it just by chance the long grain segment of the film? Well, I, I did get a chance to go to the soundstage to see that, but my first day was a place out here called Africa, USA, the sequence with the lion when the kids end up out in the, out in the, the, uh, the jungle or sort of desert there. That yeah. was my first day. Your father directed many legendary actors, Paul Newman, James Mason, Rod Steiger, Julie Harris, Henry Fonda, just to name a few. What would you say attributed to his success with working with actors? Well, like me, actually, but he, my dad started out as an actor. He was a theater arts major at University of Minnesota. That's where he met my mom, and they both started as actors. So I think he always you know, could relate well to actors, and I think they understood that about him. Um, and it's, they just communicated well. And he was a very you know, people person, so that doesn't hurt either. Like you said, you're directing episodes on CSI. Did you pick up any directing tips or learn how to direct by watching your father, or did he give you any advice since you were interested in filmmaking? Well, I think we both came from the same place, which is at the end of the day, for, for me anyways, it's about storytelling first and technique later that comes with it. 
So I always focused on performance and storytelling, and then the visual side of it, I think, uh, should come out of what your story is, you know, in essence, form follows function. For me, and I think he felt the same way, where some people approach filmmaking from purely a visual standpoint. We both kind of came from the same place where it was about, you know, performance and storytelling. Looking over your father's credits, he has directed adaptations of the works of Ross McDonald, William Goldman, John Updike, James M. Cain, Mildred Taylor, Mary Shelley, and Ray Bradbury. Just That's just the list of the writers. He must have been very well read. And what did he look for in the story? Well, you know, it's, you're, it's interesting because you hit on something that I think that I was jealous about about his career, too, is that especially in the live TV days where there were so many amazing playwrights and people that were were writing for television back then that he was really fortunate to have had a chance to collaborate with some amazing writers. But, you're, you know, you, you're right. My dad was well-read. He loved a good story and a good play, and I, I think related to that, you know, it was a, it, a lot of it was timing as well because he happened to sort of his career flourished at a time when there were some pretty wonderful writers working and with strong voices. Yeah, I was watching the movie Midway, and I was looking at the credits, and your father was being interviewed, and he showed this um, samurai sword that Toshiro Munafini gave him, and I'm just curious, whatever happened to the sword? Well, you know, I, it's, uh, that's a good question. I, want, I It's one of those things that he had kept. I think he gave it away as a gift to somebody, because after he had passed away, it was not among his possessions when we sort of went through everything, but uh, it was cherished for years, but... I think he may have made it a gift to somebody else, but I know he was. that was pretty special to him. We're showing, as you know, no way to treat a lady. Did your father ever discuss the making of this movie with you at any particular time? He did. You know, it's one of those films that I wish I'd been a little older when he did it. it, it he and Rod Steiger did two movies in a row together, and they they had a blast. And this, you know, watching it now and, have, and sort of understanding his relationship with Rod, too, they were, it, it was, sort of played right into his wheelhouse because he had a chance to sort of be big and a little over the top in that character, and I think they embraced that. I know George Siegel and Lee Remick were two favorites of his. So, you know, he was very, I think one of his strong suits was casting, and if you look at, at his whole body of work, but especially that movie, uh, there were some wonderful actors and people he worked with repeatedly after that. I was um, also another writer that he adapted. He did a the Illustrated Man by Ray Bradbury, and also he did a television movie called The Screaming Woman. Did he have a special affinity for Ray Bradbury's work? Uh, he was a fan. He was a big fan, and I know I, I, they actually got along well uh, with both movies, and I know the the Screaming Woman, which was, one, that's actually one of my favorites. It's one of those ones I wish I could find. You know, it's hard to, hard to find because a lot of the television movies are sort of slipped through the cracks in terms of being available on DVD. But that was a great cast, too, with Olivia de Havilland. Uh-huh. I think Joseph Cotton's in it. Yeah, Joseph Cotton. Yeah. About The Screaming Woman, sometimes they post these on YouTube, and I did find it on YouTube. The thing about it is it doesn't have any sound. It's, oh. the, <laughs> it's the strangest thing. Somebody's posted the movie, but it's without sound. While we're talking about stories, your father produced and directed this great movie that I love. It's a personal favorite of mine called The Traveling Executioner, or script by Gary Batson. It's such an offbeat movie. Do you know yeah. how your father came about to direct it, or did he ever talk about that with you? 
Well, it, it makes me feel good that that's one that you've recognized because that was a, probably a real passion project for him and one of my favorites that he did. And actually the, the, the a version that exists was a, a cut down that MGM had made. And it, uh, not to be too long-winded about this, but there is a story there. The, the movie was in, in production when the studio changed hands, and, which happens often uh, when, when in a situation like that, a lot of the new regime, they kind of don't want to have anything to do with projects that were already underway and greenlit by the previous administration. So the movie was kind of swept under the carpet. It was released to good reviews, but into at double, into double features and sort of, you know, slipped away. And it really, that left a real scar on my dad because it was such an important project for him. And I was fortunate enough to have seen an earlier version before the cut down, which was even better than the one that exists. But I, I agree with you. I think it's, it's a really quirky offbeat film. It's one of the little gems of the 70s that nobody knows about. Well, you know, he did several, you know, like Rabbit Run, and we just mentioned, and also the one we're showing, No Way to Treat a Lady, and Kaleidoscope. Did he Was he drawn to that type of quirky, offbeat material? Would he like to have done more of that? I think, yeah, it, absolutely. If, uh, that, that was the kind of stuff he loved to do with character and, you know, a little bit of quirk and sort of something a little bit offbeat. That If he had his druthers, those are the kind of movies, I think, that were really in his wheelhouse that he loved to do. Your father directed Airport 1975, and I have to ask this, did he ever see the movie Airplane and the spoof they did of his movie? Oh, yeah, because he and Peter Graves were childhood friends. So, yes, he did. That was during a period when he was actually under contract where I'm working right now at Universal in the 70s, and originally that was not going to be uh, like a sequel to the original Airport movie. It was based on a book called Panic Vector, I think. And it was going to be a standalone, but Airport had done so well that they rebranded it as uh, an Airport sequel, which is sort of the genesis of that project. Okay. Did but he, he, got a, he got a big kick out of Airplane. Oh, okay. Do you have a favorite movie or television movie your father directed and why? I think you mentioned one of them already. I think The Traveling Executioner is one of my favorites because I'm a fan of the movies of the 70s, uh, and actually I noticed in your blog that you interviewed Jerry Schatzberg, and one of my favorite films is Scarecrow mm-hmm. from that period. But I think probably Traffic Executioner, because I know that was so close to, it was a special project for him. He had found the script, and Gary Bateson was just 21 years old, I think, when he wrote it, and it was something that he sort of grew from the ground up, and I know how much that meant to him. And then, you know, to be honest, some of the Twilight Zones that he did, I, I'm really fond of, and I think he that that was a neat period for him as well, yeah, where he was learning his craft. And he did The Night of the Meek, the famous one with Art Carney. Is, yeah, yeah. that was a relationship, too, the two of them. I, I'm not sure, you know, it's funny, I'd have to go back and dig around on his IMDb page, but I know they worked again together. But that's another actor that he connected with pretty strongly. Uh-huh. Did your dad ever discuss what his personal favorites of his movies were? I know he loved Harper. Because that just as a, you know, it was one of his bigger successes. But also, he he and Paul Newman got along really well, and I think that was a period when he was really enjoying what he was doing. His relationship at Warner Brothers was really good, so that was a special one. And I know Traveling Executioner, even though at the end of the day that it left a sore spot, but I know the he was very proud of that movie. But you know, like anybody who, especially had a career as long as his where you're kind of gravitating from one thing to the other. I think, you know, you embrace each project and 
try to get the most out of it, what, whatever's happening. But I think those two in particular would probably be standouts. Okay. Your father directed a television movie called The Longest Night, and I've heard that this movie was a main source of inspiration for Quentin Tarantino's Grave Danger, the two-part episode that he directed for CSI. Is there any truth to that? There is. It, 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 uh, the interesting story, when I was fortunate enough to edit that episode with Quentin, and which was a pleasure, but when I first heard that the story was based on a TV movie about somebody being buried alive, I thought it was Screaming Woman. And so once we got to work in the cutting room, I, we were sitting there, and I asked Quentin, I said, yeah, you know, when I first heard that you'd pitch this story, I thought it was he, – he knew my dad right away because so, he's such a film historian. But I, I said, I thought it might have been that movie. And he goes, no, I, I saw that, but that wasn't it. And he goes, it was this other one that I, it was David Jansen. And you know, I said, boy, that sounds familiar. So my assistant looked it up on IMDb, and it turns out that it was The Longest Night, which my father had also directed, and I had forgotten. So it was one of those kind of weird moments where we we both looked at each other and said, okay, this is odd. <laughs> but that's, it's true. That's a true story. It's just kind of funny. I noticed I was looking at an international movie database, and both those movies, television movies, came out the same year, 1972. Yeah. Was, there, was that just a fluke? Yes, I think it was a fluke completely. One, uh, I believe The Longest Night was based loosely based on a, on a true story. Uh, and then... The other one, the Olivia de Havilland film, Screaming Woman, was obviously the Bradbury short story, but um, it, yeah, that was just coincidence. You said you edited that episode, uh, Grave Danger, and I was just curious, what's it like to be in an editing room with Quentin Tarantino? Well, it, it, you know, I'd been a fan of all of his work previous to that, but, you know, I'd never met, met him, and he's got such a strong personality that I was really curious to see what he was actually like, and, you know, he's so that guy for real, and... Like, he has an amazing memory for just about anything. I mean, he knows every TV movie, who directed them, who shot them, who was in them, you know, all, every feature. He's like a walking encyclopedia. So we had a blast. He was really, really fun. I think he enjoyed working with me and um, was really happy with what we did. You know, that originally was just going to be a, a single episode that got expanded into a, a two-hour. So it was a, it was a pleasure. I, for me, it was really a lot of fun. The writer Jerry Stahl, who wrote some of the most popular and controversial episodes of CSI, I'm curious, when those scripts were filmed, was it business or usual, or is, this is going to be something different? Well, you know, I think the, the Jerry Stahl episodes early on were very unique in that he's got a unique voice, but um, Jerry wasn't like a staff writer here, so he wasn't a presence, at least in the office and on the set, but in the writer's room he was. And we always knew that anything that he had his name on was going to be a little bit offbeat and different. <laughs> uh, my boss served on a jury jury duty, and she had to fill out a questionnaire, and one of the questions was, do you watch CSI on a regular basis? And I'm curious, has there been a backlash from the court system because of the show? Well, I know early on after you know two or three years in when the show was really probably at its apex in terms of viewership, they they started talking about the CSI effect uh, in courtrooms, which is similar to what you're describing, where the, you know there were so many people watching the show and starting to learn about forensic science that it was becoming an issue for attorneys. Because part of the problem was people were expecting 
you know, ironclad results, and that's not always the case. They're, they always don't have DNA evidence or something conclusive like we do on our show. Uh, but a lot of the people that are consultants with us, we have Elizabeth Devine, who's one of our writer-producers, is a former CSI. We have an on-set tech, Larry Mitchell, who was a CSI and a police officer who sort of vet the the basic science in all the episodes. So even though we stretch things a little bit for dramatic license, we've always made an effort to do the best we can to, you know, at least show the the, the realistic process that's behind all the science. You started out as an editor on the show, and now you're directing and producing. Uh, what was the transition like to go from editing to the director chair? It was something that I'd been looking to do for a long time, and the, ironically, the show was such a hit when it when I first started that it took me longer to make the transition than would originally been the case because the network had sort of a no new directors policy for a little while because it was such a runaway. But everybody here was so supportive. Carol Mendelson, who's our showrunner in particular, and is still here, as you know, we, we got along well in the cutting room, and she appreciated my storytelling sense and was was very supportive of, of my transition. And we've just got an amazing crew here. So it was kind of a dream come true for me. And, and the last few years have just been amazing because we've pretty much stuck together. We've got a lot of the same people that have stayed put. And with the transition in actors from Billy Peterson to Lawrence Fishburne and now Ted Danson, it, for me anyways, it's kept the show very fresh. So it's, you know, it's every day I still pinch myself when I come to work. It's what I always wanted to do. This final question, CSI crime scene investigation is going on its 15th year. Is there any talk about breaking gun smoke and law and order's record of 20 seasons? <laughs> Well, it's funny at their our craft service table up on the stage. They've got a big chalkboard that has you know how many days are left in the season and what kind of food we're having that day. But there's also a list of the top ten scripted dramas, and we're we're always looking at that. We're right behind, but uh, that you know we we're all at the uh, we all understand now that it's a, it's a year to year thing, and we'll, you know we just do the best work we can, and I'm sure everybody keeps an eye on that. It would be exciting, but even getting to 15 is uh, a feather in all of our caps. Everybody's pretty proud of what we've done and excited that we're getting another year. Well, I hope you make it to 20. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Okay, thank you for doing this interview for us. You bet, Bill. It's been a pleasure. All right, bye-bye. Bye. I would like to thank Alex Smite for doing the interview for us. Please come to the main library auditorium on 615 Church Street to see No Way to Treat a Lady. It will be shown July 12, 2014 at 2 p.m. Remember, it's free, and today's music is from The Traveling Executioner by Jerry Goldsmith. Mm-hmm.